Today's episode is sponsored by the Election Ride Home podcast. Someone's going to be challenging Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home podcast is dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail, who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, and what the polls say. It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall be learning about the burning of the Amazon rainforest and the war against the indigenous peoples living there. Yeah, sorry, this is not much of a silver lining episode, uh, but we do the hard truths on this show even when they are, eh, you know, hard. That's uh, that's how that goes. Uh, Before we get into the horrors, though, Uh, Let me tell you about this one interesting factoid that I happened to know before doing the research on this show, but it became particularly relevant uh, when listening to all the news coverage of the burning of the Amazon. You've probably heard it too. Everyone uh, mentions that the Amazon rainforest generates 20% of the world's oxygen. And as far as I know, I think that's correct. But When someone says that, and they say it right next to the fact that the Amazon is burning, it leaves you with the impression that if the rainforest were to burn down entirely or be completely wiped away or, uh, you know, as we'll learn, uh, the the threat of desertification may happen. The rainforest can hit a tipping point, at which point the rainforest will cease to exist as a rainforest and will convert to a, you know, totally different landscape. That leaves you with the impression that the world would then generate 20% less oxygen and that All the things living on Earth, uh, primarily us, you know, thinking about it selfishly, makes us think there will will actually be 20% less oxygen in the atmosphere. So here's the little factoid that I happen to have come across in the past uh, few months, which is that although the Amazon may generate 20% of the world's oxygen, it also consumes about that same amount all by itself, because there's so many things living there, so many oxygen-ingesting organisms living in the rainforest, that even though it generates a huge amount of oxygen, it consumes basically all of it. So there are lots of reasons to be concerned about the survival of the rainforest. Carbon sequestration, the weather cycles, it is integral to, uh, as I said, the threat of desertification and, uh, you know, releasing the carbon to the atmosphere and no longer being a carbon sink, all of those things. There are lots of reasons to care. It just so happens that oxygen levels produced by the rainforest, which you are led to believe, directly impact the rest of creatures living on Earth directly, might just not be one of them. Now, I, I'm positive it's more complicated than that, but I just wanted to uh, let everyone know that it's much more complicated than just the idea that it generates 20% of the world's oxygen and we breathe oxygen, so we need it. That is 
pretty much the level of reporting that we've been getting. Uh, oxygen good, rainforest generates oxygen, the end. So it's more complicated than that. It's definitely more complicated than I'm presenting it, but at least now you uh, know that there's more to be learned. Now, just a quick note to stick around at the end of the show for, uh, we have interesting voicemails today about the difference between justice and revenge, some of the benefits of getting active, and the fundamental conflict between capitalism and nature, quite fitting for today's episode. And before we get started, just a quick reminder that if you want to support the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary and voicemails and conversation and all of it. We are in particular need of members right now. Uh, Trump fatigue syndrome hits progressive media pretty hard and directly when people decide to stop listening to their shows or to stop supporting them. And so we are in that camp. We need to reverse a very slow, multi-year decline we've been witnessing in our members and donors and listeners. So if you get value out of this show, even when it's hard to listen to, and you have a few dollars every month uh, available to help us produce it, you can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now on to the show. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, Tisky Sour!, The Majority Report!, The Intercept!, This Is Hell!, The Green News Report!, and The Real News!. As we turn to Brazil, where fires continue to rage in the Amazon, new drone footage shows the widespread smoke and fires gathering strength. A vast plume of smoke has spread over South America and the Atlantic Ocean, visible from space. The fires are also destroying large swaths of land in Bolivia as the devastation continues to spread. Far-right Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro said on Tuesday he would— reconsider accepting a $22 million offer from the G7 nations to help fight the fires in the Amazon, but only if French President Emmanuel Macron withdrew what he called insults made against him. Look, first of all, Mr. Macron should withdraw the insults he made against me. First, he called me a liar. And then, from the information that I have, he said our sovereignty over the Amazon was an open question. So in order to talk or accept anything from France, which might be with the best possible intentions, he's going to have to withdraw these words. Then we can talk. Facing global pressure from environmentalists, President Bolsonaro pledged in an address to the nation to mobilize the army to help combat the blazes, but many blame his policies for the spread of the fires. Bolsonaro has worked to deregulate and open up the Amazon for agribusiness, logging and mining since he came into office in January. The fires are unprecedented in recorded history. Environmentalists say most of the fires were deliberately set by illegal miners and cattle ranchers. So far this year, there have been nearly 73,000 fires in Brazil, with over half of them in the Amazon region an 83 percent increase from the same period last year. As the world reacts to the Amazon's destruction, indigenous Brazilians are on the front lines of the fight to save their land. Indigenous leader Sonia Guajajara said in a statement, quote, we're putting our bodies and our lives on the line to try to save our territories. We've been warning for decades about the violations we've suffered across Brazil. The predatory behavior of loggers, miners and ranchers has been getting much worse under 
under the anti-Indigenous government of, of Jair Bolsonaro, who normalizes, incites and empowers violence against the environment and against us, they said. Well, for more, we're joined by Maria Luisa Mendonça, director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil, visiting scholar at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Maria. If you can talk about what exactly, how this all happened, why the Amazon uh, is on fire at this point, and talk about the G7 offer to help President Trump not going to the climate meeting of the G7, that empty seat there with the other world leaders around him. He said uh, he was meeting with India and Germany, but um, Prime Minister Modi and Chancellor Angela Merkel were in the two seats next to the empty seat, so he wasn't meeting with them. Okay. Yes, I think Trump and Bolsonaro, both of them, they don't believe in climate change, and uh, they are very close to industries that uh, are the main uh, cause of climate change, uh, the oil industry, agribusiness, mining. So uh, Bolsonaro gave a green light for illegal deforestation of the Amazon. Uh, the current uh, environmental minister in Brazil used to do lobby for mining companies and uh, has said that uh, Brazil should allow mining exploitation in indigenous land. Bolsonaro is very close to the agribusiness sector that, uh, and he said that uh, uh, Brazil should expand monocropping of soy in the Amazon. So the oil industry and agribusiness, which relies on chemical inputs based on fossil fuels, are the main cause of climate change. And uh, in Brazil, uh, with Bolsonaro's uh, policies cutting funding for agencies that monitor deforestation, uh, he just a few weeks ago fired the head of the National Space Research Agency that uh, was putting out information about deforestation. So basically, you know, he gave a green light for the illegal destruction that we see now. And explain the setting of the fires all in one day. I mean, the maps are incredible right now of the rainforest, because you see the indigenous areas. They are green, indigenous people protecting their areas. And then the areas outside of that on fire. Yes. What yes. did the loggers do? Yes. Uh, well, the Amazon is not empty land, of course, right? That is, there are about a million indigenous people living in the Amazon, and they have been protecting the land for many, many generations. Uh, but what we have seen uh, is that uh, there is more pressure to expand the so-called agriculture frontier in Brazil, in the Amazon. And usually what happens is that uh, we have local land grabbers that uh, uh, put fire in the land. They take the timber, they do these illegal activities, uh, and then, um, then you see either cattle ranching or uh, monocropping of soy. So this is the cycle of destruction. And now this year, of course, the situation is much more dramatic. Uh, we have seen 80%, over 80% of increasing of deforestation in comparison to last year. And the European Union? I mean, many people oh, said yes. it was pathetic uh, what they were offering, 20 million, but that they were. And then the politics of Bolsonaro saying, no, you couldn't even deal with your own uh, Notre Dame cathedral on fire, um, and then insulting uh, the French president and his wife. 
Yes, Bolsonaro is really happy with the destruction of the Amazon. So he's going to come up with any type of excuse uh, just not to take responsibility for what's happening. And uh, so I think that uh, the international community needs to call for a boycott of the main commodities produced by agribusiness, beef, soy, sugarcane, and timber. I think this is the only message that uh, Bolsonaro is going to uh, to uh, that, ha- that will have uh, any type of impact because he doesn't believe in climate change. So I think that uh, uh, and also the giving aid to the Bolsonaro administration, I don't think that is going to help very much. I think uh, we need to support indigenous communities, small farmers that are protecting the land that and who produce over 70 percent of the food for internal markets. Several thousand indigenous women gathered in the capital Brasilia this month to protest the policies of Bolsonaro. Hundreds occupied a health ministry building as they demanded the government respect indigenous rights in the Amazon. This is Joana Uapajena, the first indigenous woman elected to the Brazilian Congress. Protest is an important act to defend the rights of indigenous peoples. We are under a series of systematic violent attacks. There's the lack of demarcation of indigenous lands, the issue of health, education. This is all in danger. We are fighting against privatizing for a fairer and quality education. So if you can talk about what she said and the significance of the indigenous women gathering and protesting. Yes, that was very important. They they had a very large protest just a few days ago, and uh, the indigenous communities in Brazil are very well organized, and uh, they are calling the international community uh, to pay attention, to keep monitoring the situation. And uh, we also have seen, for example, recently a UN, UN report uh, saying that uh, industrial agriculture is a main cause of climate change, and uh, one of the ways uh, to prevent that is to protect indigenous communities that uh, have been uh, protecting the land for many generations. So, you know, uh, climate change and protecting indigenous communities are key factors to, to deal with the crisis that we have now. You have Bolsonaro um, pulling Brazil out of being the host of the U.N. Climate Summit um, in December, and so Chile is going to take on that responsibility. Um, the illegal logging, the those that are burning the forest, talk about the day they set fire to the Amazon. It's not as if this doesn't happen at other times, uh, in to say the least, at a much smaller degree. But what happened on this one day? Yeah, what we have seen now is that uh, apparently there was a coordinated effort from uh, illegal uh, loggers and land grabbers in the Amazon. They called the the day of the fire, and uh, that happened uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so now the police is investigating actually some WhatsApp groups that uh, were coordinating those activities, those illegal legal activities. So um, also we have seen reports saying that uh, the uh, there was more rain this year than last year, although this is the dry season. So uh, we cannot explain why 
the level of uh, destruction, and there are so many more fires this year in comparison to last year. So, can you talk about Bolsonaro uh, putting his uh, refusal to um, first accept the money, but also to deal with the opening up the rainforest for business, um, putting uh, his critique in colonialist terms, saying, this is not your house, this is our house, you know, we get to do with it what we want. Yes, well, uh, the thing is, at the same time that he says that, he's implementing austerity measures and opening up key sectors of the Brazilian economy uh, to privatization. He wants to privatize, for example, the National Oil Company, public banks, electricity companies. So he's opening up... Uh, our lands for uh, mining exploitation, for agribusiness. You know, the agribusiness sector, the marketing of those commodities is pretty much controlled by large transnational corporations. So we're not talking about development of the Brazilian economy. Agribusiness, uh, they promote destruction. This is not about development. They produce just a few crops for export. Uh, they don't generate jobs. You know, the jobs in plantations are horrible jobs. We have several cases of slave labor in those plantations. So if we really want development, we need to protect our national, our natural resources, because to have a productive agricultural system, we need to protect the soil, the water sources, we need to protect that biodiversity, and we need to transform our food system, because agribusiness is a main cause of climate change. And the agribusiness is specifically Yes, well, mainly what they produce is beef, uh, sugar cane, soy, and timber. So that's why I think we need to call for a boycott of those four products from Brazil. I think this is the only message that uh, is going to have an effect in terms of uh, pressuring the Bolsonaro administration, because he doesn't believe in climate change, and he is implementing policies that are giving a green light for deforestation. Brazilian philosopher and theologian Leonardo Boff uh, uh, wrote uh, this morning about uh, the need uh, to put Jair Bolsonaro on trial for crimes against humanity. And uh, that tells you about the scale of what is happening. Because, of course, it's not just the Amazon, which is uh, bad enough. We have also been getting warnings from uh, indigenous peoples in the Guaviare region, in the Colombian side of the Amazon, uh, but also in the Venezuelan, Brazilian, Colombian sort of uh, Apapodis basin, which uh, the indigenous call the path of the anaconda. They uh, think that the, the path is being lost. In fact, uh, if you speak to the palabreros and the shamans there, as uh, I had the opportunity to do just a few weeks ago, they will tell you that they cannot see beyond 2026. Now, what they mean by this is that they're in their uh, prophetic visions and their uh, community-wide uh, conversations, they see that their very infrastructure, not only of their communities uh, and not only of the continent's uh, uh, nations, but 
uh, worldwide is about uh, to uh, disappear. Uh, what uh, we need to know about the water cycle, uh, which the Amazon is the very heart of, is that it affects uh, not only the Amazon's own uh, ecosystem and weather, but uh, you know the, the water that evaporates in the Caribbean Sea is captured by trees in the Sierra Nevada, for instance, which is also in trouble in Santa Marta, in the Caribbean region uh, between Colombia and Venezuela. And then every forest carries it back to the Cordilleras and to the Amazon, so that uh, the rivers that end up in the ocean are, can actually be reborn there. Mm. That's what they mean when they, say, when they say that they cannot see beyond 2026, because uh, the very nacimientos, the birthplaces of uh, these rivers, are being destroyed by the fires. And we must insist on the, on the fact that this is not just some sort of, uh, you know, side effect of uh, uh, economics uh, playing out. This is a concerted effort by mostly right-wing governments to uh, uh, try and do what uh, their forebears have done since uh, perhaps the 16th century. But now it is being accelerated, which is uh, self-colonization. Uh, which also explains why why uh, far-right populists like Bolsonaro can play the anti-imperial card abroad while at the same time using their hate speech in order to isolate precisely these uh, indigenous communities, uprooting them, uh, you know, raining fire, not metaphorically, but literally, because, uh, uh, you know, the, the planes, the army planes have been raining uh, glyphosate, uh, this chemical uh, uh, compound, which is like fire, it kills uh, uh, this uh, very forest uh, under the pretext of fighting the war against drugs. Uh, Duque has been doing so on the Colombian border. Bolsonaro is doing very similar things on the Brazilian border. They both say that they are protecting the national interest, but actually what they're doing is protecting the individual rights and the rights of certain corporations, which, with, which have very, very clear links uh, with some well-known people, and I'm sure we're going to hear about that later on in this program. And uh, they do so also in order to make sure that the younger generations of voters in both their countries who are already in the streets protesting against both of them do not link up their uh, demands with the knowledge and the plight of uh, rural peoples and indigenous peoples in particular. They know that the last time this happened, there was a continent-wide shift to the left. And because that very phenomenon is already beginning to take place in Argentina. Someone like Bolsonaro is very wary of that, repeating the Brazilian economy is not doing well. It's actually doing pretty badly under his watch. And uh, he knows what uh, you know, that, that plus the uh, revelations, the continuous revelations that actually he was, he's in power because of a real plot uh, to uh, make sure the opposition was uh, out of the game. He knows his position is very fragile. So it is out of a position of weakness that he's doing what he is doing right now. But make no mistake, as we just uh, heard, uh, this affects not only the politics of a region, but the very existence of us all. But what is important is that this is uh, a sort of uh, repetition of history. This is exactly what has been going on 
since uh, the beginning of colonization. I mean, first it was gold, then it was rubber in the 18th and 19th century, uh, then uh, uh, coca mostly. Now we have all these uh, crops. But what is different is that this is accelerating and it is also a very concerted effort by uh, governments to make sure that their political position does not suffer uh, because also the communities in these uh, areas of the world are very well organized and their protests, as it happens in Colombia, very, very often also it has been happening in Brazil even though the press has not been reported uh, uh, as it should, uh, these uh, uh, organizations fighting there connect very well with uh, uh, urban organizations and they have very, very uh, uh, sustained, well-sustained global networks. So now uh, they know, you know, the Bolsonaros of this world, of this world the Duques of this world, they know that their position is uh, uh, at risk. So they're... they're they want to uh, act uh, very quickly. They want to do so decisively. They use a very, uh, very well-designed uh, 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 hate rhetoric, which is disguised as uh, uh, a nationalistic and anti-imperialistic. So we have here we have, to, to sum up, the 1% disguising itself as the people in order to uh, uh, make sure that, uh, uh, you know, the game mm. uh, stays the same. Well, let's go. I want to dwell a bit more on sort of like the discursive strategies that are being used to, I suppose, justify justify what Bolsonaro is doing. I want to first just clarify what's the direct mechanism that has allowed for these fires to increase and for deforestation to increase once Jair Bolsonaro has has come to power. So, so what is what's changed fundamentally that's that's meant that fires have increased eighty three percent since since last year. Well, I mean, I think just picking up on Oscar's point, um, you know, really what indigenous communities at the front line in the Amazon are, are saying is that really Bolsonaro's election has given the green light to all sorts of different uh, forms of agribusiness to sort of expand into these spaces. Um, you know, some of them but with the sort of non-intervention of the state, others, you know, potentially with their complicity. Um, I mean, just to take another a point, this is very similar to what happened uh in Peru in the sort of mid 2000s when uh, there was a kind of soft left sort of soft right government in power but the uh, elected president Alan Garcia uh, very much gave the green light to kind of international corporations and to uh, sort of national um, or sort of you know illegal miners uh, and sort of smallholders to say you know this is your opportunity to really take the riches out of the earth it belongs to the nation state to sell and you know make money off as it wishes um and really it should be seen as part of a sort of a plan to different disenfranchise those indigenous communities who sort of live there and um you know that racist rhetoric is absolutely key to what is going mm. on um so you know i think the debate of whether it's you know beef or soya or palm oil or whatever to, which is to blame misses this sort of bigger structural point which is um, that this is about an alliance of kind of international big business with um, local far-right actors. Uh, or we, I mean, you know, even we can talk about Bolsonaro being a, a far-right president, but certainly it's been the case across Latin America in the past two decades that um, this kind of extractivist developmentalism has taken place under sort of governments of all, of all different mm. types. Um, so, you know, we should be very much aware of 
um, the role that big businesses has played in that, even if the people in the front line aren't people who we might you know necessarily recognize as yeah. sort of corporate actors. Um, and certainly, um, you know, the, um, uh, indigenous, uh, peoples of Brazil put out a report, I think a few months ago that named some of the corporations that have kind of backed, uh, this kind of expansion into the Amazon. So it's banks like Barclays, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, BlackRock, you know, other big financial institutions of the world. And what are they getting out of it? Well, they're re- really reaping the financial benefits of a system which depends, you know, as we've said, on taking out the sort of mineral wealth from, uh, you know, formerly colonised countries or, you know, spaces which continue to be colonised uh, and to be sold, you know, on international markets, to be invested uh, or sort of made into, you know, new products in the so-called developed world. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're really the, the pinnacle of the, you know, the financial, uh, sorry, financial system that uh, has this kind of extraction at its base. We know, and it has been repeated, uh, that the Amazon is a core fulcrum in the Earth's planetary system. We already know that we're in an ecological crisis. This is B-roll of the fires in the Amazon. Now, it's very important to note, and I just want to say here, I mean, look, and also how the fires are affecting cities in Brazil. It's very important to be real here that this is a political project. This is inseparable from the Bolsonaro government. This is inseparable from the U.S. backing uh, of things like Lava Jato, the Wall Street endorsement of J.R. Bolsonaro. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, on the day that Bolsonaro won, put out a tweet saying, you know, he's controversial, but great business opportunities. So it's extremely important that we frame and understand what this is, which is that J.R. Bolsonaro, along with the Republican Party, is the greatest threat to human survival on planet Earth right now, that this is a political decision, this is an ecocide and a global ecological threat, and it's also absolutely a form of ethnic cleansing of the Brazilian indigenous communities, and that there is a long policy set which implicates the Obama administration, the DOJ, Wall Street, mining and ag businesses that lead to this moment we're in, which is literally life and death for the entire planet. This is a report from Brian Mayer. He's a reporter, of course, for Telesaur and also uh, co-editor of Brazil Wire, which is the indispensable Brazil resource everybody needs to read, reporting uh, from Sao Paulo yesterday on the fires. I'm standing on the north side of Sao Paulo, where the entire city is engulfed in smog, as it has been since Monday, in a weather phenomenon that's related to smoke coming up from the Amazon rainforest, where thousands of fires are currently raging. Now, every year in the dry season in the Amazon region, small farmers and ranchers practice slash and burn agriculture techniques. They burn the the scrub on their land and it creates nutrients in the soil. It's not good for the environment, but it's hard to convince them to stop doing it. But what's happening this year is different. President Jair Bolsonaro is 
giving out signals to the big loggers and agribusiness companies that they can invade natural parks and indigenous reservations and chop down trees and burn whatever they want. And so there's huge fires out of control, animals are dying, and uh, the risk is that if he continues acting this way, there could be a phenomenon called dieback in which the entire forest could burn down uncontrollably uh, if it reaches a certain point of deforestation. And some biologists are predicting this could happen by 2030. Now, if Bolsonaro stays in power acting this way, the odds are that this is really going to happen. And since the Amazon provides the world with 20% of its oxygen, it would be a catastrophe. J.R. Bolsonaro is the greatest threat to human survival on planet Earth right now. Um, and But, you know, by extension, obviously, the United States government, the corporations that have backed him. And this needs to be understood politically. It needs to be understood economically. And we'll certainly get back to, you know, the latest about the political imprisonment of Lula. But everybody who, uh, first of all, backed and orchestrated this process and then uncritically covered it, uh, has a direct stake and implication in something that literally threatens the future of the entire planet and is a crisis, a profound crisis in Brazil right now. Several weeks ago, an indigenous leader was murdered. This also correlates with regular shootings of activists and organizers in Brazil, ongoing threats, um, legal and extrajudicial against Glenn Greenwald, um, and just two weeks ago uh, or a week ago, Marielle Franco's wife, uh, her, her widow, went to go visit Lula in prison. Marielle, of course, was assassinated by a cartel that a lot of reports can link to the Bolsonaro family. So that's what's happening. And it is a matter of utmost urgency. Hey everyone, I'm Glenn Greenwald with The Intercept, and as you probably have heard, we published a series of articles this Sunday that have created what is, without exaggeration, a major political earthquake here in Brazil. And given the importance of these revelations, as well as the complexity of them, I wanted to just spend a few minutes talking about the most critical aspects of our reporting the implications of the reporting, and also what the future entails, given that the archive that we're using is one of the biggest archives in the history of journalism. So as many of you know, Brazil, which is the fifth largest country in the world, a country with massive oil reserves and with the single most important environmental resource for the planet's survival, which is the Amazon, is a country that has suffered enormous numbers of different kinds of crises, including political crises. In 2016, they impeached the twice-elected president from the Workers' Party, the center-left party, Dilma Rousseff. And then last year in 2018, a figure who has been on the fringes of Brazilian politics for decades, the far-right congressman Jair Bolsonaro, ascended to power, something which a year before or even six months before 
was unthinkable. So it's a country that is undergoing radical changes and that is of incredible importance far beyond its own borders. But by far the most important event that took place in Brazil was the imprisonment last year of former Brazilian president Lula da Silva. And the reason his imprisonment was so important wasn't just because he's a giant on the world stage in the democratic world. Even though he is that, he was elected as a former labor leader, as somebody who grew up in intense poverty, who was illiterate until the age of 10, who lost a, fig, uh, a finger working in a factory as a laborer, said the type of person who never wielded power in Brazil. He was twice elected overwhelmingly in 2002 and 2006, and then was term limited out of office in 2010 and left office with an 87% approval rating, unheard of in any country, any major country in the democratic world, because he lifted millions of people out of poverty, transformed Brazil fundamentally. And so just to put him in prison without anything else is already an extraordinary event. But what made it so much more critical was that Lula had announced and everybody knew that he was intending to run for president again in 2018. And all polls showed that he was the overwhelming front runner. He was leading every other candidate, including Bolsonaro, by 10, 15, 20, 25 points. And so when Lula was imprisoned and then a, an appellate court very quickly affirmed that conviction with a strange speed in time to make him ineligible to run, it meant that they were removing from the election the political leader that Brazilians wanted to be their next president. So when you remove and bar and render ineligible one of the giants of political history of the 20th century and the person leading the presidential race, obviously that is an earth-shattering political action to take. And the reason Lula was imprisoned is because there has been this five-year corruption probe that has been sweeping in nature. It has put billionaires and powerful politicians from multiple parties into prison. And it turned into heroes, the team of prosecutors, including led by a young prosecutor in his 30s named Delton Delengal, who used his celebrity to write a best-selling book, and especially the judge who oversaw most of the convictions, who became an international celebrity, Sergio Moro. He was named as part of the Time 100 Most Influential Figures, and there was a huge 60 Minutes piece on him. They really became icons, heroes of the noble crusade to fight corruption. And here in Brazil, there was almost no journalistic questioning of them. They used the media. They would leak information all the time about whatever politicians whose reputation they wanted to destroy. They wielded immense power and they put Lula in prison and removed him from the presidential race. And after a few years, people started questioning what their real motives were. Are they really apolitical, anti-corruption warriors who have no ideology other than fighting corruption and applying the law to everybody equally, which everyone agreed was a noble thing? Or were they really political operatives trying to do what Brazilians have been trying to do unsuccessfully since 2002, but were unable to do democratically, which is destroy the Workers' Party and bring the Brazilian right into power by exploiting and abusing the power of law. And there was no way to know which of those theories was correct because they operated entirely in the dark. They had almost no journalistic investigation. 
And the archive, the massive archive that our source provided to us is the first look, the real look inside of the actions of Judge Morrow and of the prosecutors who composed the task force that have put so many people into prison, including former President Lula da Silva. And what this archive unquestionably reveals, and even the most virulent and vocal defenders of Judge Morrow and of the Lava Jato Task Force have admitted in the past three days since our reporting began, is that serious improprieties have been demonstrated on the part of both Judge Morrow and the task force led by Dylan Gall. We published three articles in, in, in particularly that demonstrated this, the first of which shows exactly what they have spent years denying. They've spent years denying that they have any political preferences, that they have any ideological views, that they care about who wins or loses elections. They've always vehemently insisted that. And yet the first story we published shows exactly the opposite, that internally in their private chats that we've exclusively obtained, they were talking openly about how their goal was to prevent the Workers' Party from winning the 2018 election. In particular, there was a ban on interviewing Lula during all of 2018 when he was in prison. A judge finally authorized the largest newspaper in Brazil, Folha of São Paulo, to interview him. And on that day, they plotted how to subvert or block or dilute that interview by lying and saying that they couldn't get the security ready in time or trying to turn it into a press conference, hoping that would minimize it or getting other prisoners to have the right to be interviewed to distract and turn it into a circus. And they said explicitly that their goal was that they were worried that a pre-election interview with Lula would help elect the Workers' Party. And they even said, the chief of the task force said, he was praying that there be no return to power by the Workers' Party. So it showed how much they lied to the public systematically, that exactly the thing that they always denied, that they had a party preference, that they were against the Workers' Party, was in fact exactly what was motivating them. The second story was even graver. It showed that Sergio Moro, who after he condemned and sentenced Lula to prison, which paved the way for Bolsonaro's victory, accepted Bolsonaro's offer to become a super justice minister. And it's called super justice minister because Bolsonaro created this uniquely powerful position specifically to entice Sergio Moro to join his government and lend it credibility. It consolidated unimaginable powers in one person of surveillance, of law enforcement, of investigation. And Sergio Moro accepted and became part of Bolsonaro's government after he succeeded in removing the principal obstacle to Bolsonaro's power, which was Lula. And what these documents show is that the entire time that Judge Moro was pretending to be a neutral judge, simply listening to the evidence on both sides, the way a judge in the United States and other judges in other countries are required to do, neutrally adjudicate the evidence, He was, in fact, doing what many people suspected, but which, again, both he and Delton vehemently and repeatedly denied in public. Namely, they were collaborating in secret with the prosecutors to design and construct the case and the strategy behind it. So we have months of conversations between Judge Morrow on the one hand and Delton, the chief prosecutor, on the other, in which Judge Morrow is directing 
the prosecution on how to build the case, on how to strengthen the case, scolding them when they were making mistakes in his view that made the case weaker. He was designing the very criminal case, not just against Lula, but multiple other criminal defendants, and then walking into court and pretending that he was just a neutral judge, as he said in his speech, with nothing but passive values, no participation of any kind. It not only proves that Judge Mora was a liar, but it puts into serious doubt the validity of the legal judgments he issued, beginning with the criminal conviction of Lula, which the Supreme Court, in light of our revelations, is now scheduled in two weeks to revisit. And there are a lot of legal experts who believe that that criminal conviction of Lula will be nullified on the grounds that it was the byproduct of Judge Morrow's improprieties. And then the third story we revealed is very similar, showing that internally the task force knew that the case against Lula that they chose to prosecute him on, which was always regarded as a trivial case, lacked any of the evidence necessary not only to convict him, but to justify why the task force itself had the right and the jurisdiction in order to prosecute it. So it showed that they themselves knew that the case that they were telling the public was overwhelming and irrefutable in terms of Lula's guilt was, in fact, not just dubious, but fundamentally flawed. So this reporting has cast an entire new light on everything that has happened in Brazil of any significance over the last 12 months. It has obviously destroyed the carefully constructed reputation of now Justice Minister Moro, the second most powerful person in Brazil and previously the most respected. His mask has fallen. Everyone has read for themselves the conversations that he had with Deltan where he collaborated unethically and against all basic notions of fairness in helping the prosecution build the case. They've seen that the task force itself did exactly what they always denied, namely explicitly thought about how to destroy the Workers' Party. And it has led even right-wing newspapers that have long cheered Judge Morrow to call for his resignation, to call for Delton's firing. And because these figures have been so crucial to Brazilian politics over the last five years, and because Judge Morrow is so central to the legitimacy of the Bolsonaro government, it's hard to imagine revelations more significant than these. Let's start with uh, your latest article of Brazil, where the day the sky went out, you write on Monday, August 19th. That's this week. You left your home on the north side of Sao Paulo at 2 p.m. and headed toward the Tiete bus station. I was picking up a friend arriving from Rio and the bus was late. So at around 3.15, I stepped out of the terminal and looking for a cheaper cup of coffee and all the street lights were on. And you asked, was I dreaming? Instead, what you saw, all the streetlights were on. You said a freak incident caused by smoke from out-of-control forest fires burning in thousands of points across the country. And satellite photos were showing that a lot of this was coming from the Amazon rainforest. How do profiteers benefit from the burning of the Amazon rainforest? And would this burning be taking place if Dilma or Lula was still in office? 
Well, you've said a lot of things at, uh, at once. Just to start off, that was really, um, you know, pretty freaky to just be in a city of 20, you know, 24 million people or something, a huge city, and just see everything go black at three in the afternoon. I'm still, and then like, it just seemed weird. I couldn't, didn't know what it was. And I went out drinking with a couple of friends and it was just like, it seemed really clammy out. And as I got home, I found out, no, that was smoke from the Amazon jungle, which is like a thousand miles away. Okay. It was like, it was like, a, you know, I, I felt like the woman in that Lars von Trier movie, what is it? Melancholia or something almost, you know, like what the hell is going on? How could, how could the city get dark from smoke a thousand miles away? So you'd never seen anything even, you'd never seen anything even close to this before in your life. No, I mean, I, I lived up near the Amazon for eight years, like on the entryway to the Amazon, San Luis Maranhão, in a state, half of the states, like in the legal Amazon region, and the other half is pre-Amazon. And I've seen all kinds of forests burning. I used to see, like, on the local news that this or that little town in the countryside was got dark in the afternoon because of forest fires nearby. But I've, I've never seen... This is a... Yeah. I mean, imagine like if Chicago just got dark at three in the afternoon because there were fires burning in Louisiana. How much smoke would that have to be? And it wasn't like one little cloud that drifted, you know, down or something. It was a continuous smoke cloud stretching from the Amazon jungle down south over Sao Paulo. So how have Brazilians reacted to the burning of the rainforest? Do they... Do they have national national pride in the forest, or do those on the right simply not care about the forests and deny the impact of the burning of the forest on the climate and Brazil's environment? Well, it's you know, first of all, what drives this all is international capitalism. You know, it's luxury products going up to the north, like beef, soy, you know, and things like that. That have, have and and minerals, you know, like gold and things like that. Aluminum, uh, alumina, which is a prime ingredient in aluminum, nickel, all this stuff that's used up in the rich countries in the north comes from the Amazon. You know, like I remember in the 80s when I worked at Greenpeace, McDonald's, I believe, was still buying a lot of its beef from the Amazon. So, the, you know, they helped develop the beef market in that region. And it was the World Bank that first convinced the Brazilian government that they should incorporate destroying the Amazon rainforest into the national development plan. So basically, like in the 60s, early 70s, during the military dictatorship, the World Bank sent a bunch of technocrats down and convinced them that they should rip down the forests in the state of Rondonia and relocate a lot of poor, um, you know, like landless peasants from the impoverished northeast to that state and use it to, to raise cattle and things like that. And, that, you know, that's what they did. And from that point forwards... Destroying the Amazon was like part of the, a controlled destruction, which spun really heavily out of control in the first couple of decades. You know, uh, that was like part of the development plan. And it wasn't until um, really, you know, like Chico Mendes in the 80s, who was killed uh, and his second in command, Marina Silva, who ended up working as Lula's uh, national minister of the environment. You know, you saw inklings of this change of mindset during 
the end of Fernando Henrique Cardoso's presidency, but it was really the Lula administration that started uh, making the argument that it would be better for Brazil's development to preserve the Amazon rainforest than to destroy it. And so this is why, and this is something you're not seeing at all, you know, on the, uh, in The Guardian, for example. I mean, I, I remember when Dilma Rousseff was thrown out of office, Jonathan Watson, the Guardian, said, well, the PT's record on the environment was horrible, but Michelle Temer's appointing Sarney Filiu, who's a veteran environmentalist, and that could be a good sign of this all. It was a ridiculous thing to say from him. The Sarney family deforested the entire state of Maranhão, where I lived for eight years. And it's, uh, but uh, there was a report given to the United Nations in 2014 called Deforestation Success Stories, okay, by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And chapter two of this document is entitled Brazil, the world's biggest reductions in deforestation and emissions. Okay, uh, and this is like a, a actual like UN report that was generated by this Union of Concerned Scientists, whatever. But they detail exactly what happened, you know, and during the Lula years, they cut, they didn't eliminate deforestation, but they reduced the level of deforestation by 84%. They had the largest reduction in deforestation and carbon emissions in the world at that time. They met their, um, uh, they met their carbon emission, uh, 2020 UN carbon emissions um, goals like nine years early. You know, and and most of the reduction in carbon emissions was through this massive reduction in deforestation. You know, and so that was all just that's all just completely been undone in the last two years, three years since the coup, four now, sorry, three, whatever, three years since 2016. That's all been undone, and we see now that you know Bolsonaro came into power, sending out all these signals to the ranchers and the miners. You know the the soy farmers and everybody who's interested in ripping down rainforest that he wasn't going to punish them. He cut the budget for the governmental agency fighting global warming by 95%. He butchered all of the regulatory agencies protecting against um, deforestation on indigenous reservations. He's basically told people that he's not going to punish them if they go in and log on indigenous reservations and in national parks and things like that. So we have now a situation where in the first six months of his uh, reign, 20,000 illegal gold miners have moved into this huge Yanomami indigenous reservation near the Pico de Neblina National Park on the border with Amazonas and Horaima. And they're dumping all this mercury into the rivers. And all of these indigenous people are dying of diarrhea right now from drinking this river water all the fish are dying Good. so then that that's just like one example the level of deforestation has gone up 82 percent in the first six months of this year Jeez. so that's why we have a 1000 mile long cloud of smoke <laughs> so, uh, so brian you know that i love talking to you about the U.S. media, because they do such a great job in covering events like this. For instance, on CBS Evening News this week, anchor Nora O'Donnell 
After saying that the United States may have its first ever climate change refugees happening right now on Ile de Jean Charles in Louisiana, completely dismissing all those that fled Hurricane Katrina and didn't return to New Orleans, dismissing all those who fled Houston after it was hit by Hurricane Harvey, dismissing all those who fled Puerto Rico after being hit by Hurricanes Irma and then Maria. Following that ludicrous report, O'Donnell said this about the Amazon fires in Brazil. It's not clear what's causing these fires. Critics of right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro say it's due to his policies not saying what those policies are. Of course, she didn't say that. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro says these fires have been set purposely by his opponents purposely to make him look bad. Brian, how clear is the cause behind these fires to the Brazilian public? Yeah, um... I would say most of the Brazilian public understands what's going on because it's an old problem. Everyone knows these fires are man-made. Like no one thinks these fires are just because of a drought. Okay, first of all, but that reporter didn't tell the story properly. What Bolsonaro really said is he accused the international NGOs like Greenpeace of setting the fires <laughs> so they could get more funding. That's what he actually said. So they, you know, in an attempt to make it look like they're giving both sides of the story, there they they lied. That's not he didn't, he, you know, he actually blamed it on the, you know, the NGOs. So it's like World Wildlife Federation, you know, back from slaughtering pandas in China is now setting wildfires in the Amazon jungle. That's basically what he said because it, it's just it's a clown show, Chuck. It's just like Trump. It's a clown show, like what George Monbiot said about. Boris Johnson, Trump, and Bolsonaro, they're killer clowns. They're just, they're just out there to distract everybody while the oligarchs flee, you know, rob us blind. Meanwhile, in Brazil... Large protests have erupted in large cities across Brazil and outside Brazilian embassies around the world, with demonstrators demanding Brazil's right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, do more to fight the record number of fires now decimating the Brazilian Amazon, the world's largest tropical rainforest. Most of the fires are being set by illegal loggers, farmers, and ranchers clearing land in response to Bolsonaro's policies to open up the Amazon for development. International outcry has succeeded in pressuring Bolsonaro to deploy military troops and two firefighting aircraft. At the same time, at the weekend meeting in France of the G7, the world's seven largest economies, G7 leaders agreed to donate $22 million to fight the record fires, which was dismissed by critics as paltry. Leonardo DiCaprio's foundation has also pledged $5 million. The G7 leaders also agreed to assist in funding a medium-term reforestation plan. French President Emmanuel Macron warned that destruction of the Amazon is a global issue because it absorbs a chunk of humanity's carbon emissions, but also because of its influential role in driving global rainfall patterns. Brazil's Bolsonaro criticized that assistance as an attack on his country's sovereignty. So let me get this straight. The seven richest countries in the world could only come up with about $22 million, and Leo DiCaprio came up with $5 million all by himself? Yes. That 
That is pathetic, isn't it? And on a side note, at the G7 summit, President Trump skipped the meetings on climate change, biodiversity and oceans. Yeah, said he was busy with a meeting that ran long with Germany and India. And yet somehow the leaders of Germany and India were able to make that climate change meeting. Go figure. Brazilians have hit the streets in outrage against the Amazon fires. Dozens of marches and rallies in recent days. Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, thousands in the streets. Florinópolis in southern Brazil is almost as far as you could get from the Amazon and still be in the country. And here too, people are livid and upset. Ingrid Assis is an indigenous labor leader who was born in Manaus, the capital of the state of Amazonas. We feel like we are dying inside, and we can't let this feeling consume us because we have to fight, and we have to bring more people into the streets because of all of these attacks. They blame far-right President Jair Bolsonaro for the widespread fires and his failure to stop them. Bolsonaro has promised to open up the Amazon for development. They say his rhetoric, coupled with his government's cuts to environmental agencies, spurred farmers, loggers and land grabbers to action. More than 74,000 fires have blazed since the beginning of the year, 84% more than last year. Roughly a third of the fires across the Amazon have been on protected land. Earlier this year, Environment Minister Ricardo Salles oversaw a massive 25% funding cut to the country's Environmental Protection Agency, IBAMA. According to recent reports, IBAMA received word that landowners were going to start massive blazes across the region on August 10th. IBAMA requested support from the Ministry of Justice. Nothing was done. What is happening right now in our country is an indescribable crime. We can't allow it to continue. We have to do something. We have to find a way to protect our forests, protect our indigenous communities, to maintain the minimum of what we have. On Monday, people also marched on the Brazilian embassy in Washington to demand action to stop the blazes and to hold Bolsonaro accountable. After nearly two weeks of reticence and on the heels of pressure by the EU, Bolsonaro finally ordered 44,000 troops to combat the fires. According to the Ministry of Defense, they began operations on Saturday. But the fires continue, and so does the fight to protect the Amazon. I'm very realistic, and I expect a lot of struggle. This is the first year of the president, and look at everything that has happened. We expect a lot of support, but we aren't just waiting for others. We have to hit the streets, hold hands. We breathe the same air. When it runs out for me, it runs out for everyone.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! laying out the basics of the story still evolving in Brazil. Tisky Sauer discussed putting Bolsonaro on trial for crimes against humanity and uh, looked at the concept of self-colonization. Michael Brooks on the Majority Report explained why Bolsonaro is one of the greatest threats to human survival on Earth. Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept explained some of their recent reporting on the corruption that led to Bolsonaro's totally illegitimate election. This is Hell spoke with Brian Mayer, who described the smoke from the Amazon blackening the skies a thousand miles away. The Green News Report discussed protests in Brazil, and finally, The Real News shared audio of some of those same protests. Members this week will hear an interesting mix of additional content on today's topic, including some more uh, sort of details about attacks on indigenous people and getting more into the weeds of the corruption of the Bolsonaro regime, but also a more fun and uh, somewhat lighter look at the pitiful weakness of these so-called strongmen, uh, particularly Bolsonaro in this case, uh, you know, around the world, who are actually completely sensitive, delicate flowers who can't take the slightest bit of offense. Uh, these people made insecure by their knowledge of how illegitimate they are in their power. So there will be all of those bonus clips, and we'll be continuing an ongoing series we've been having fun with recently on the bonus show. Regular caller, you may recognize Dave from Olympia, is stuck in a bit of a time warp. So he's been calling in from the past with interesting questions and insights about episodes that came out weeks or months ago. And so I've been having fun talking with him across time and space in a segment I've been calling Back in Time with Dave from Olympia. So that's been good fun for everyone. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in with regards to your prosecutor's story. Great episode. You know, I wanted to share a little experience I had. My car was broken into twice, actually. Uh, once a work laptop was taken and some other stuff, and another time not much was taken, but some granola bars and <laughs> mints and stuff like that. And my attitude in both of them was, well, you know, they needed that stuff more than I did. My boss was very upset, and we have tracking software, as you know, I work for healthcare, and we got the machine back, and the person got arrested and, you know, sentenced and so forth, and ended up not doing any time. And I was okay with that, because to me, it was like, you know, it's, it's part of their life and the difficulties they have in the life they know, and, you know, nobody was hurt. And so, to me, there was no real damage done. Um, my boss, on the other hand, was like, I can't believe they got off. They should throw the book at them. This is crazy. And it's like, to me, sending this person to jail wouldn't have changed anything. You know what I mean? Like, better to reach out and say, hey, you know, you broke into my truck and you stole stuff. How can we do this better? How can we get you what you need? What do you need to be a productive member of society. How can we help you? So it leads to the thought of what is justice? And if you're a victim, 
you know, there's no fixing some things. There's no undoing stuff that happens, you know. If your house burns down because lightning strikes it, you got to deal with the same stuff, the same emotional stuff, than if your neighbor's kids were playing with matches and burned them down. You know, now you have someone to blame, and it changes the way you look at it. And that's unfortunate, because instead of looking at how we can help people, we look at how we can blame people. And I would just like to see us give some thought to that. But yes, more progressive prosecutors. It brings me down to what I always considered more grassroots movements is start local. Start with the local PTA. Start with the local prosecutor. Start with your immediate areas and improve those. Get those people on your side and fighting and thinking the way you do. And then you can expand from there. But if you don't have it down locally, it doesn't matter whether Bernie's voted in as president or not. If he doesn't have the support underneath him, he can't move mountains. Thanks. Stay awesome. Hi, Jay. Hi, Amanda. This is Nancy. I'm calling from San Francisco. I listen to every single one of your shows and all your bonus episodes. I've been a member since 2013, and I just wanted to call in and let you know how independent media has changed my life and what I do. Um, I am a dog walker. I am a 60-plus woman who lives in San Francisco. I have very little money and spend most of it on uh, independent media. So it's really changed my life. Um, through you, I've found David Pacman, Majority Report, Michael Bookshow, The Antifada with Jamie, Literary Hangover, TYT, and I donate um, as much as I can every month. I mean, I'm on a patron subscription to each one of these, um, and then I send in additional money. And one of the things that I've learned is that getting involved um, with a political organization or working on something politically keeps me engaged and keeps me optimistic. So I have recently um, started working on the com- uh, campaign of Shahid Batar, who's running against Nancy Pelosi for District uh, 12 in San Francisco. Um, he's an awesome, amazing person. He's incredibly talented and he brings together people with um, incredible skills and optimism and um, the power to want to change our country um, in the best of possible ways. He's a total humanist and he just has given me so much hope and being around the people that he brings together gives me hope. So I just wanted to add that to it because I know you had talked about People being fatigued and depressed and, and there, there is the power of organizing and being around like-minded people. So, and even in San Francisco, which is considered a liberal city, um, there's a lot of conservative values and ideas and, um, it can get me down. So when I'm around people who want to change for the better and bring people together, it gives me hope. So thank you again. Thank you for all your ideas on activism and getting involved and staying present because that is clearly what keeps us going. Thank you again. Stay awesome. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I was recently listening to episode number 1301 
which may I say, I wish a lot more podcasts would put numbers on their episodes, makes it a lot easier to identify them in comments. That said, I was listening to it and um, had a thought, which I wanted to share with your audience. I would implore them to look back at the history of the United States of America from around 1870 to 1910, when conservation began to really become a focus of the citizenry as capitalism not only spread across the land, but did so in such a manner that it was destroying the natural world which it came into contact with. This is vitally, vitally important to the discussion which we are presently having because much of the destruction which was done during this time period has just recently, over the last three or four decades since the uh, start of the EPA, begun to be not only cleaned up, but remedied. There are still a number of sites that have not even begun to be rehabilitated because of corporate pressure to not do so because of the amount of money that it is going to cost to uh, rehab the soil, the water, and the air which they have destroyed. The reason why all this is important, though, is because the same group of people who were against conservation over 100 years ago are again against conservation. I've been having this discussion with many of my conservative friends who are obviously hostile of some of what I'm about to tell you, but it is the truth nonetheless. We have to begin to see the corporate structure for what it is. The corporate structure was developed during the time period of bureaucracy, the creation of bureaucracy in Europe. And the corporate structure was created to consolidate power, to create a hierarchy within the society, which connected all who were trapped in it to the uppermost, highest level in that structure. It was also created during a time period of, or should I say, it was also organized during the time period of imperialism and great expanse, where there were literally, in the minds of the people living there, no limits to how far they could go in reaching uh, their end. There was always new territory to conquer. In other words, when you look at it from a biological sense, the corporation, when it, when it interacted with nature, was akin to a cancer cell. It destroyed as it grew. We have to have a serious conversation when it comes to conservation and the environment on what to do next with that structure, plain and simple. Thanks for your work. I'd love to know what your listeners think about that idea. It's somewhat radical, but it is one that I have put a lot of thought into. Keep up the great work. Peace.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Just a quick response to V on the question of capitalism as a cancer yeah, the the idea of being able to manage infinite growth on a finite planet is definitely something that I confronted many years ago and thought, well, that obviously doesn't make sense, and heard well-meaning, somewhat progressive people attempting to argue that, no, what we fail to take into consideration is that technological advancements allow for you know greater resource utilization on a finite planet so much so that we can continue to grow because there will always be some new thing that will you know kind of save us and so you know what was it the 70s where they were talking about the population bomb and how we were going to have too many people and we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves and advancements in food production made it so that we can feed ourselves. Okay, so that's one data point that says we can invent things. Now, of course, there are a lot of drawbacks to the way our food system works and how we produce all the food that feeds all the people and how there's actually less nutrition in the food we eat now than there used to be, and on and on and on. But the idea that you could do that indefinitely is still ridiculous. To me, I, I think the best case scenario for a species that uh, does not ever learn to live sustainably is that you become the alien species from Independence Day, and you become an interplanetary species, and then you just have to keep going to other planets and wiping out other species and extracting their resources to use for yourself because you don't know how to live any other way than to consume more than uh, you're able to sustain in one place. So you just have to expand infinitely, which brings us back to cancer as a as a pretty, uh, pretty good analogy, I would say. Uh, now, just before we wrap up, I have a, a, an impromptu uh, activism segment here at the end. Uh, we often do these in the middle of the show, not today for whatever reason. So I, I just want to let you know that um, the indigenous people of Brazil obviously are fighting back. So uh, here are some thoughts on that. Uh, many different tribes have put aside past differences and joined together as one to protect their home and one of the most important ecosystems on the planet. They are on the front lines, literally risking their lives in the face of fires set by cattle ranchers and deadly militias of illegal mining and logging operators. They need our help and support. First, you can donate to the organizations supporting resistance on the ground. These include, but are not limited to, Amazon Watch, which works directly with indigenous communities to protect their rights in addition to the rainforest itself, and 
Rainforest Alliance, which is working with their public and private partners to pressure the Brazilian government to reinstate environmental enforcement to defend the Amazon against all existential threats. They have also pledged to give 100% of the funds donated through their social media alert to frontline groups in the Amazon. Rainforest Alliance also offers a Protect an Acre program, which sends funds to grassroots organizations working to protect the forest and communities in vulnerable regions by helping activists regain control of and sustainably manage traditional territories. And finally, there is no better time to commit yourself to the climate movement in general, from the fires in the Amazon to the Adani coal mine in Australia to Trump allowing oil and gas companies to ravage protected lands. We are at a critical point in our fight for a just, healthy, sustainable future. The global climate strike is taking place from September 20th to the 27th, and we all need to be part of it. Learn more at globalclimatestrike.net. And I will leave you today with words from an environmentalist and chief of the indigenous Brazilian Kayapo people uh, who wrote an op-ed in The Guardian this week. Quote, For many years, we, the indigenous leaders and people of the Amazon, have been warning you, our brothers who have brought so much damage to our forests. What you are doing will change the whole world and will destroy our home, and it will destroy your home too. Unquote. Get the links in the show notes and help spread the word. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. As always, leave your comments at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.